So let's just say we completely blow up the legal profession and rebuild it from scratch. How would we want it to look? Would it look the same as it does now? Not if today's guest has anything to say about it. Stay tuned. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So a few weeks ago, we heard from Bloomberg Law podcast producer Adam Allington about the new investigative series he just released looking at the past, present, and future of the bar exam. You can go check that out over on our sister podcast, Uncommon Law. It's really, really good. Today, we're going to bring you one of the interviews Adam did that didn't quite fit into his three-part series, and that's because the interview was with Clifford Winston, an economist at the Brookings Institution and a former professor at MIT. Winston is one of the most prominent evangelists of the view that the legal industry is severely overregulated. You'll hear what he means by that in a bit, but one example is that he thinks it's unnecessary and unhelpful that certain legal tasks can only be performed by attorneys. And this isn't just a theoretical argument, at least not anymore. Just weeks ago, California became the fourth and by far the largest state to allow non-lawyers to offer legal advice on certain topics like employment issues or consumer debt. So what would the legal world, according to Clifford Winston, look like? Adam rang him up and asked him, and he started off by asking Clifford how he got into this line of work. Clifford, you've written several books about the legal industry, including most recently a book titled Trouble at the Bar. So did you go to law school? No, I'm an economist, strictly an economist. No. So what led to your interest in this subject from an economic perspective? What was the question you were trying to answer in your book? Right. So ju- just by way of background, sort of my research area prior to this was in regulatory economics. So I did an awful lot of work on deregulation of the transportation industries, airline deregulation, truck deregulation, rail so on and so forth, and looking at those issues. And then it it seemed to me that sort of a natural extension of that was regulation in the form of what we call occupational licensing, uh, which exists in a number of professions. And in particular, what I thought was important was the legal profession. So they did not have price regulation in the traditional way that those other industries did, but they did have entry regulation. And so I thought, you know, let's, this has not gotten much attention. Uh, It'd be a useful thing for me to take a look at what the effects of those are, what policy implications we could draw from that. And the first book I wrote was actually called First Thing We Do, Let's Deregulate All the Lawyers. And, you know, that focused more more on just the rent seeking that the legal profession had gotten, you know, the increase in their wages and all that kind of stuff. The new book goes further and tries to sort of suggest that there are much broader issues than just simply transferring wealth to the legal profession. That is, these entry barriers really have an impact on access to justice, efficacy of public policy, and now more recently concerns about ideology on the Supreme Court. You wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal earlier this year titled, Eliminate the Bar Exam for Lawyers. And the common pushback you tend to hear when you talk to people about getting rid of the bar exam is that people say, well, we have licensing exams for doctors, for accountants. You know, you wouldn't want an unlicensed pilot flying your plane or an unlicensed doctor doing your surgery. So why doesn't that hold true in the same way for lawyers? Right. 
So let me be clear. I think this is, you know, unfortunately, the, you know, the Wall Street Journal, they titled my op-ed, which got the attention of eliminating the bar. Actually, then when you read the piece, I don't, I don't say that. The, the main point that I make when I raise these concerns is that there could be many different types of lawyers that can provide valuable services for the public. And the public itself has very different needs from the legal profession, which really aren't being matched when you only have one type of lawyer, someone who spent three years at an accredited American Bar Association law school, passed a bar exam, got a whole bunch of debt, so on and so forth. You know, that kind of lawyer is not going to serve the majority of the public. And estimates are that you know, most of the public is not served by the legal profession. So my point is, I don't want to get rid of bar exams. People are perfectly free to get any kind of credentialing they want. What I want to do, though, is allow for the reality that you often do not need three years of legal of law school or to pass a bar exam to provide useful services. So for example, just a one-year on, online course in wills or family law, whatever, may be sufficient for somebody who wants to provide those kind of legal services. You, we could have undergraduate law degrees. You know, why we don't start very early in legal education is beyond me, where someone just gets an undergraduate degree and could provide some useful services, so on and so forth. So my point isn't to eliminate the bar exam, it's to make that just an option, but allow other people who could potentially provide useful legal services to have the option to do that through alternative forms of education and credentialing. And let the market determine then you know, how successful those people are gonna be. But I think we already have a pretty good idea that they will be successful because there've been a lot of people who provided valuable legal services without passing a bar exam, let alone going to law school, let alone going to college. In fact, the most requested legal advisor on helpmelaw.com was a 16 year old high school student. And people didn't realize that. And there have been other examples of that kind of thing where people who are not trained as lawyers just do the reading, go to the library, figure out the law and they provide helpful advice. Just to add some color to the picture you're painting, what would increasing the supply of lawyers at different levels actually look like? Obviously, that could drive down prices, but I'm sure there are plenty of people who would say, we already have too many lawyers. So what's the point you would make to those people? Well, think about really what people are saying. You have a restriction in supply of lawyers because of these entry requirements, bar exams, so on and so forth, okay? So obviously that's going to be inflating the price of legal services uh, simply for a given demand. And what I'm saying is we're going to allow more lawyers in, the price will go down. So we will have a quote, quantity of lawyers adjusting now to a much greater demand for lawyers. So again, what, what one has to imagine now is a service that is far more differentiated than before. And this is sort of what happens under deregulation. It's not like the old days where there's just sort of the Soviet model. We give you one thing and you like it and that's it. That we're gonna have people who want to be very responsive to, to people's different preferences, different demand for legal services. And at the same time, you're gonna have people who are trained differently 
to provide those kinds of services and specialize in these kinds of things. In the contact, in, in, in the process, then that will generate competition in a variety of different areas. Not all prices, I'm, I'm not saying the highest end lawyers are gonna get that much more competition, although they might, uh, and I could get back to that if you want to, but for the, the most part, you know, most legal services will become less expensive and they'll be reaching a broader segment of the population. So I kind of want to be careful about how I frame this, but are you also kind of saying here that organizations like the National Conference of Bar Examiners or say the American Bar Association, even law schools, I guess, have a profit motive for preserving the status quo because of the impact it has on the cost of legal services. So therefore, the reason they would oppose eliminating the bar exam is because it would threaten their bottom lines. Well, certainly that has to be at the back of many people's mind. Um, but I think also it, it, it goes hand in hand again, how lawyers think, right? Lawyers think in terms of precedence. This is how we did it, right? Until we can see you know, some reason for changing it you know, within some bounds that we're able to do it, we're gonna keep doing it that way. So it's not natural for lawyers to sort of, sort of look you know, over their entire profession and say, hey, this is crazy. We're trying to license people when there's no obvious benefit from doing so and there could be a cost and we need to change. I think in a sense, it's just outside the scope of how lawyers tend to think about, in general, policy issues, and certainly policy issues affecting their profession. They have no incentive to do it, and they're not really trained to think that way. So there are certainly lawyers, don't get me wrong, who are aware of exactly the things I'm talking about, and they're making efforts on, on the uh, edges to try to make changes, but by and large, the profession says, look, we don't see any reason to make changes, we like precedents, we're going to keep things going. And we certainly don't like some economists telling us that you know, what we're doing is harmful. But I think it's increasingly clear if you look closer at what these effects have in terms of access to justice and you know, increasing concerns about policymaking, that there really needs to be some investigation of, of the uh, costs of entry barriers. So economic questions aside, I interview a lot of lawyers, and I haven't found too many who speak highly of their bar exam experience, especially over the past couple years with COVID and all the snafus related to remote testing and so forth. So it seems kind of odd to me that there would be such hesitance to change things just based on the anecdotal stories you hear from lawyers. So are you at all surprised that there isn't a greater willingness to change? But remember, again, my point about that it's in keeping with just the mindset of the legal profession and also the fact that in the policy world, there are many veto players. So just think really of the kind of person you would need one to start a movement to end the bar exam, but also then consider all the veto players who can say no. So you think about there's some obvious policy changes uh, that economists are always recommending, here's things you ought to do. And it may even start making some progress, but then some lawyer comes along and says, now nah, we, we can't do that. You know, there's always something that's in the way that prevent us from doing that and nothing happens. Um, and we see that quite often, or just, you know, it's very hard to get it off the ground. This would be exactly the same. 
you know, you just have many veto players and there is this status quo bias, both in legal thinking, which is my major criticism of the silo effects of law school and the institutions themselves that, that make it much harder to get things done like this. So, you know, it really is gonna take a shock to really change this profession to start rethinking about how it's training people and for its broader effects. And again, let me stress, you don't have to get rid of bar exams. You know, set it to a market test, but let's just see you know, what progress can we make in other areas without it, or even have different ways of testing people. And there may be even a better way that you can credential lawyers, but the market's gonna, gonna teach us that. There are active movements to kind of reevaluate the bar exam. For instance, several states have impaneled commissions to make recommendations for changes. The state of Wisconsin is famously the only state that does not require law students from in-state schools to sit for the bar exam. Even the National Conference of Bar Examiners has announced a plan to phase in a so-called next-generation test that will be more focused on legal skills instead of rote memorization. Do any of these ideas seem promising to you, or is one better than the rest? All the above. I mean, in other words, my whole uh, approach is experiment. Let us try many different things. Um, let's not be you know, boxed in a corner with one thing, and let's see how they do. And what will come out of that? It could be, yes, it really is the bar exam is a waste of time. It provides no information. You know, look what colleges are doing now. They're throwing out the SAT. Apparently, you know, they, they feel it's not providing much information in terms of the student body that they want to attract. You know, is that going to teach us something? You know, so that's that's something we can learn. One quick follow-up I just want to insert here is that another common pushback you hear is that the bar exam also helps save law schools from their worst instincts. That without things like the bar exam, profit incentives would drive schools to accept lower calibers of students, and you would kind of flood the market with underqualified lawyers. I'm guessing that idea doesn't hold much water for you either. Well, again, let, let's think about this in, more generally in terms of economic markets, right? Not, right, think of hotels, right? Not, not every hotel, you know, uh, aspires to be Ritz-Carlton and provide super high service, charge a lot of money and all this kind of stuff, right? We have, we have a range of quality of, of different uh, hotels. Um, you know, economists, you know, there are economic PhDs that went to, you know, well-known graduate schools and have published a lot and they, they obviously do certain kinds of things. There are people who don't, who didn't do that. They have undergraduate degrees in economics, but they, they work as consultants for certain kinds of projects. That's kind of funny. Uh, I actually have an undergraduate degree in economics, and I ended up in journalism, actually, without going to journalism school, I might add. So just to extend the analogy to another discipline. <laughs> That's the point, that, that why narrow it? And you're saying that there has to be, well, some lower bound. Well, yes, but the lower bound varies dramatically in terms of the type of service that you're providing. And you know, just helping somebody with a will does not mean that you need the skills to argue uh, in front of the Supreme Court or, or something like that. And also most importantly, what is wrong with the market in, in, in weeding out people who are not offering good services? They, they will not succeed. 
and you're saying, well, then these people are hurt. No, these people aren't getting any service now. Um, yeah, they're better off at least getting somebody with an undergraduate degree in law to help them than what they're getting now, which is either nothing or representing themselves, or sometimes you know getting someone to help them who really doesn't want to, but is assigned by the court. So I think that is the kind of thing that we need to explore, which is what markets are very good at doing, and they're being prevented from doing that. That was the Brookings Institution's Clifford Winston speaking with Adam Allington. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Cheryl Sines, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Taxes and accounting are complicated. But finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Jeff Leon. And I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you, from corporate filings to diversity within the profession, and even the latest on the burgeoning cannabis industry. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.